the Sunday Major is back to the USA. America's Card Room is kicking off 2018 with a Texas Hold'em-sized bang that could change your life. Beginning January 7th, America's Card Room is hosting the biggest Sunday Major on the planet with $1,001,000 on the table every week. Yes, $1,001,000 guaranteed. Forget about just one time to change your life. The $1,001,000 guaranteed tournament is happening weekly, all for just $265 a pop. For all the info, check out americascardroom.eu. Okay, welcome to Ask Alex, episode 163 on the 1hour.com podcast, sponsored by americascardroom.com. If you want 27% rate back from americascardroom.com, simply sign up for your account by clicking on one of the ads or banners on the 1hour.com website. Follow us on Twitter at 1hour.com and join the Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash 1hour. This episode and all of their previous episodes are on the 1hour.com website and via iTunes for free. If you want to send questions in for the show, then please email questions at onehouter.com or you can tweet them or post them in the Facebook group and Alex will uh, answer them eventually. Alex, uh, you are here. It is Thursday. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Uh, just <laughs> uh, showing up a little late due to the New York trains doing this fun thing where they stop underground and you just kind of hang out and wait for them to get their act together but you know that's okay they only charge 10 percent state income tax and 10 percent sales tax and property tax why why and by the way it's not like the subways are free to you after you pay all that money like you still have to pay uh three dollars a shot and uh if you're like me you have to take the path train and then you have to take another train in the queens that's six dollars each way wherever you're going so yeah, you know, they, they don't have it together, but such is life. Uh, how you doing, Barry? Yeah, yeah, I'm good. Um, I had a little joke needle with Alex before it. Um, if you follow his newsletter like I do, um, his latest one that I've got in my inbox to read is called I Show Up. And um, Alex, as a result <laughs> of these train problems today, was 50 minutes late. So I said, uh, yeah, could you please change it to, yeah, I show up eventually, you know. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, um, sure. yeah. Read the fine, read the yeah, fine, the fine print. I show it, it didn't up. say on time. It just said, I show up, and he, he did eventually. It actually you know, said, so. I show up when I feel like it, yeah. Right, right. <laughs> uh, and, uh, <laughs> yeah, but uh, that, that is pretty funny that happened right after that email. Yeah, but Alex is here, and that's the main thing. So, Alex, I know you've got Borgata next week. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that. Thanks to the people, actually, that have emailed in already. I released a bonus episode this week. Um, the OneOuter.com podcast the last few years or so has been Ask Alex. We've you know been doing the question and answer session, and that's our main gig. Um, but recently I had Alan Boston back on the podcast, and everybody really enjoyed that. I'm actually going to get him on again because he was wanting to go through a lot of his process and stuff. He keeps getting like all his Twitter followers asking that. And he's like, if someone will have me on a podcast again. So I said I would with him, and he wants to do that. So that'll be interesting about his whole uh, in-depth process on sports betting he's wanting to do. Um, but we I, had uh, this guy Richard Munchkin on, who I mentioned in the last episode, who was the film director, writer, etc. Professional blackjack counter, um, serious advantage player, Really interesting guy. So I had him on for the uh, podcast, and lots of you have sent in great emails already saying like some of these stories. I mean, 
Alex, if, I know you're a busy guy, but if you get a chance, you should even listen to it. There's one story that you need to just hear him say from the World Series, like, back in the day that you will just, like, I'll, love. I'll love. love. Yeah, I'll yeah. Check. You need to hear no, I'll it. check it out. By yeah. the way, did you slap the America's Card Room ad on that? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Episode? Oh, man, I really appreciate that. Yeah, <laughs> That'll yeah. keep us in their good graces. Yeah, yeah, That's, no, no. They sponsor the show. It's like, it's... I said, you know, when we did that deal, they sponsored the one out our podcast, so that's it. It's on out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go. I appreciate you. On the Alan Austin one as well. Barry, for about two weeks, I will not give you a hard time about how hard you work for your paycheck on this podcast. That's good. Maybe maybe two (laughs) weeks. I appreciate that you doing that bonus episode. Yeah, no problem. Um, So this week, um, we're going to talk about... Borga, you're going away there. What do you want to talk about? And then we'll get into the questions. I know Alex has got a couple of lessons back to back straight after this, and he's running a bit behind anyway. So we're going to try and keep this one quite tight. Now I've got three questions here, good to go. But Alex, if there's anything you want to talk about or or mention before we start, that's a that's a really good question, and it's hard because I literally just walked in through the door and then I walked up to this desk, and normally I have we should talk about this thing or that thing written down on a notepad in front of me, or this would be very interesting, or this has come up quite a bit lately. But no, not not a whole lot going on. I'm having a hard time with, to be honest with you, I'm having a hard time this week with keeping things a little bit more low-key. You probably shouldn't run yourself out uh, before you play a poker tournament. There's to bring this back to sports and your favorite sport, baseball, Barry, Mm. in Japanese baseball, they make them practice for like six hours before the game. And in American baseball, it's a warm up, right? And, uh, well, American baseball is a little bit bigger than Japanese baseball. Not that there haven't been great players that come from Japan, but there's a lot of, uh, problems with pitchers just throwing their arms off and things like that because they overtrain. And, I've been taking that little anecdote recently from uh, what there's this great book. What was I reading? I was reading it on the train. I'm I'm officially that weird guy on the New York subway system that's reading library books. Uh, you got to have Wa, which is about a uh, it was a New Jersey writer. I got it from the New York Library, and it, it was just about the Japanese baseball system and it's it's really fascinating their their philosophies on life are very intriguing uh the way they believe exercise is a way to cleanse the spirit which is something i really resonate with but the thing that was really interesting to me is all the american players the american stars would come and play in japan and they would just light it up mm-hmm. but they would constantly complain about overtraining and just Dis- being disciplined too much like if they missed a key hit they would get sent down to the farm system for a week so it's this ama- it's this huge major leaguer right and he's out playing in the sticks in the uh when there's tons of uh the humid summer heat in Japan and they're they're just dying in this small field uh playing for the farm system and I was reading about this, and it never seemed to work that well, right? It made the guys... The discipline was very important because it did make some of the guys very 
very disciplined, and when they could move into the American Major Leagues, that discipline would help them quite a bit if they could become a little bit more individualized, and that created some of the Japanese stars that did really well in the American game. But just overtraining yourself seemed to be a huge burden on the system as time went on. So I was reading that, and I thought that was kind of a sign to me, which was, okay, this week before Borgata, don't pull the... uh, I think it was 39 hours I worked with three hours of sleep in a trip to the weight room last week. And uh, obviously trying to avoid that. And that's really hard for me because I actually find it far more pleasant to, maybe pleasant's not the right word, but I find it far more edifying to, I find it gratifying to work hard because I'm constantly Barry tell me what you think of this do you think most elite performers just have incredible demons just they bouts with worthlessness just feelings of I don't want to fail fear of failure and it feels more natural for them to work than it does to lay around I think a lot, because a lot of people always talk about my work ethic, and I always want to say, I don't see the other option. It, there was never a point where I said, I have to become a poker player, failure's not an option. I just didn't see any other option. The reason I didn't see any other option is because if you choose not to do it, or if you decide not to do it, that's choosing failure. That, that is failure. There is a 100% chance it will not work out. You miss 100% of the shots you don't take, as Wayne Gretzky put it. And I, I feel like I certainly do battle with that much more, not as much as I used to. I used to feel worthless if I didn't work. But do you think a lot of elite performers are like that? They just push themselves a little too much because they're kind of running from something? Yeah, well, I think, I think that's the difference. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people who... Don't I think everyone experiences those feelings and uh, has those thoughts? But you think so? Yeah, I do. But I think some people decide, like you say, to just lie around and do nothing about it, or be miserable, which is you know uh, can be to a point a choice as well, and just dealing with it and going through the pain of that misery. Whereas mm. I think the elite performers kind of use it as fuel. So I think you know, yeah, I think everyone right. goes through varying degrees of feeling worthless or feeling whatever, whether whether they'll admit it or not. I think that's the human condition. And I, I, think, I want, you know, see, I want to believe everybody feels worthless except for me. Because no, I, I don't mean I don't mean all the time as well. I think I think points, right. I think okay. everyone will experience a point in their life or points, and everyone will have varying degrees, whether it be days, weeks, or a year, or they'll just have one period in their life where they do. Or some people will have it, you know, as a constant weekly battle or daily battle. So I just think everyone will go through, like, those emotions and feelings at some point. But when you're talking about elite performers, yeah, a lot of them use it as fuel. They use the negative as a positive to spur them on and motivate them. I think that's the difference between LeBron James and Michael Jordan, too. Not, not again, Barry, basketball, sorry. Yeah, I know but, those two, though. That's okay. Okay, well, LeBron James is the greatest player of this generation, but he doesn't have a killer instinct, and everybody can tell, because he's just been the anointed one 
since he was young. He's just a he's a phenomenon. He's just an Adonis, and he doesn't. He, it's very clear that he does not think too highly of himself or too poorly of himself. And if he loses a game, he's going to live, right? And I think as he gets older, it's starting to get to him a little bit more when people are bringing up, oh, you know, Michael Jordan did this and you didn't do that and things like that. But the thing about Michael Jordan is he looked like if he lost, he was going to kill himself. And as much as we like to act in America like we love self-esteem and everybody should feel good about themselves, there is something very intriguing about a guy that is going to kill himself to succeed, right? And I think as I get older, I start feeling like I get what great performers go through because it's more natural for me now. There there was... I remember at 18 years old, I would wake up early to write. I would go work as a security guard and I came home and I was playing poker. And I didn't really know if either of them would take off. I just was doing them because I didn't see another option. And poker took off, and I remember having that thought that, oh, I'll come back to writing again, right? Writing will happen. And then one day I just blinked my eyes, and I was 30 years old. And you know what? Writing didn't happen. It never happened. I wrote novels. I wrote several novels I never did anything with. I finished them, and like I put them in my desk, and I never looked at them again. I just hated them. And this whole, like, it's going to happen one day, oh, I know it's going to happen, I don't believe that anymore. I I know if I don't do something, it's not going to happen, because I blinked my eyes and I'm 30. And that's that's how life is. If you you just don't do it, you don't do it. It's not going to happen. So I have been finding a peace this year in, you know what, I'm not going to play video games. I'm not going to read unless I'm on the subway and I can't do anything else. I'm not going to do I'm not going to waste time. Uh if I'm not with family members or my girlfriend, I'm working. And that's it. And uh the only uh I think the only thing I do for relaxation on my own is I go to hockey games because it just there's the, my office isn't there and it's a way to zone out and I'm still thinking about what I'm doing in life and it gives me a chance to come up with new ideas, which I attack the second I come home. But I feel much better in that, like just weight room, coffee, work, 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 work. It, I know something can happen if I can do this. And it's actually been very difficult for me before Bergada. And it's because I have other investors. Honestly, if this was my own money, I wouldn't be doing this. Uh, but it, since I have other investors, I'm making myself work a 40-hour work week. And that's not easy. That's <laughs> as strange as that sounds. <laughs> well, I think what you say is, you know, when you've got goals, if you, it sounds so simple, but it's so true. And like most things are, when all the rest of the self-help books and the uh, posts and the Tim Ferriss blogs, etc., they're all filler, really. When you break it down to it, just do it, mm. like we've said before, and. Uh, you know, just like if you don't do it, then it won't get done. It's like it is that simple. You know, it's like it, it is. You you, it you, is you make a decision. You know, to do it or not do it, um, whatever you're doing. But um, I think there's different personality traits in terms of people can get agitated, so they can't. We've spoken about it before. If you try and 
you know, sit down for you a hockey game or me go and watch football or whatever. It's sometimes hard to just switch off and be there, you know, and, and watch it. But I'm getting better at that as well because also the flip side, Alex, as well, as I think, you know, you've experienced is if you are on too far on that side of just work, 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 work constantly, you can get away with it for a while, but eventually you will break. Your mind and your body, you know, will break to the point that it tells you to just take a break. And like a lot of these people, you know, you mentioned um, traders or top performers like that. It's like, I remember this guy saying like he gets his best ideas in the shower, you know, or, or on the train or whatever. Um, hmm. So I think it is important for the brain, just from a brain chemistry way, to work, 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 and then, okay, I'm going for a walk now. And then it is amazing what just that different breathing surroundings, and then you can go come at things from a different angle or get a bit more energy and stuff as well. So, um, yeah, uh-huh. yeah, it's, 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 it's balancing it, I think. Um, but it does come down to, yeah, if you want to get something done, just just do it. There is no secret. Just do that. You can't say I want to write a book and then just watch TV every night for four or five hours and never write the book. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. it's not going to get done. Or just piss around in poker. I, I think I have attained what to me is poker No Limit Hold'em Tournament Mastery. I do believe, I believe, I am a great believer in my game now. I am very confident in my game. I feel very good about what I have learned about this game. And to me, that feeling is worth the sacrifice because every man should experience being able to master something in their lifetime. That is something I think that means a lot to a man. And it doesn't have to be poker. It can be cutting grass. Uh, there's landscapers that make more money than I'll ever make, right? Because they're the best at what they do. And they... they uh, they mow the lawn of Bill Gates' house because they're the best at what they do. And finding that, I think, is very important. But you just, if you're going to choose to master something, you realize, you, you got to realize it's going to come at the expense of everything else. It's going to come at the expense of your relationships, and it's going to come at the expense of your other interests. There, There's not a great deal of other things I do. I just don't have much else going on in my life as opposed to, uh, you know, I have my girlfriend and I have my books and that's it. That's about it. Right. And, uh, cards. And I, I think I've gotten to the point where I figured it out. But the other thing that I've noticed you were talking about that breaking point, I think many of my players just start with my knowledge base and I don't think they had to go through their break their breaking points. I went through several breaking points and pushed through it and I'd like to think that gives me a grit that other people have, but there's a great deal of evidence that many players can start with my knowledge base simply by reading and being more intelligent about the time they invest. And maybe they're working five, six hours a day, but they're getting way better than I ever did, way faster, because they're beginning to understand what took me so many years to put together, because there's so much good content out there. And there's a way to be very wasteful. And I certainly was very wasteful for a number of years, because we all know there's guys who live at the card room. 
There are guys who live at the card room, and they are terrible at poker. So clearly, it's just not hours. It also is what you put in the hours. And something you said, all the Tim Ferriss stuff, all the self-help stuff, I didn't get it till like a year ago. I used to read self-help stuff, and I just, I would read it, and I felt like it was indulgent, like watching pornography or something. Like, it just wasn't... It, it was like, yeah, it's like greatness porn, right? Like, this is what it takes to be great. But, like, I'm not doing any of this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And even when I woke up early and I... Like, I can simulate Michael Jordan's training regimen. It doesn't mean I'm getting anything from it, right? I can shoot 100 free throws to start the morning. If I miss all but nine of them and I don't know what to improve upon, it doesn't really mean anything. And... It's only been really recently when I, I've aligned everything where I feel things are really coming together now. Because the first thing is, and nobody wants to hear it because they all know it's true and it's so damn hard, is your physical fitness. I was 50 pounds overweight at this time last year. I, I'm no, it, Not 50 pounds overweight because I'm probably still like 5 or 10. I've lost 50 pounds since this time last year. The way I feel is night and day. I process stress much better. I'm way better at my desk. I'm way better at seeing connections at the poker table. My focus is unreal at the card table. The way I was before overweight wasn't happening. Poker was just not going to happen. And then when people tell you do it and your your mentality is not in the place where you even know how to feed yourself or take care of yourself, it's, it's almost like telling a disabled kid, like, just get out on that field and block for the mm-hmm. uh, block for the running back, right? Like, it's just, it's not going to happen. You need to have, and it, it comes to your relationships as well. My personal relationships were in complete disarray, and that was my fault. That was completely my fault. I neglected my personal relationships. I treated people poorly. I, uh, the biggest problem was just, it wasn't me treating people poorly. It was me being absent. It was me just being, escaping through my work, right? And when your personal relationships are messed up and your physical fitness is messed up, it's just not going to happen. It's not going to be aligned. And it wasn't until like the two millionth time I heard, you just need to do it, that I realized, yeah, I do. I can just do it. But until you're in that state where it even seems possible, those are just going to be empty words. And I think the thing that we lose a lot of the time when we're telling people what they should be pursuing is they've done studies working toward something that you find meaningful. That in itself lengthens your life, lowers your heart rate, lowers your blood pressure just working towards something. It's the work that's the reward. Hard work is the reward. Being consumed with something you love is the reward. It's not the money. It's not holding the trophy. All that stuff is secondary. It's being consumed by the process is in itself an opportunity that very few people get. And if you... I feel weightless when I'm working. When I am up late at night, chugging coffee, looking at another angle for one of my webinars, which I'll later... I would study this stuff just just for fun. The fact I get commissioned by poker players to just 
present my findings in PowerPoint format and uh, talk about it, and then I get them to challenge what I'm asking and then to refine it again, I get a high like I've never felt before, like I never felt from any drug. I don't need anything anymore. I don't drink anymore. I don't do any drug anymore because that high, listening to metal, drinking coffee, thinking, getting there, finding that situation and visualizing my opponent. I see my opponent across the table from me now. I see him and I see the situation and I have prepared for it. And I know when I get to that situation, I will, I will be prepared. And I love that feeling when I get there. I love that feeling being the final two tables of a major tournament and everybody else is panicking. And I have practiced on the hard days, on the cold days, on the warm mornings, when my internet wasn't working, when I didn't have time, when I was tired, when I ran out of coffee in the house, when I just couldn't focus, when my vision was blurring, when I was tired, I practiced, I was prepared. That feeling is unlike any other. And it, there is no monetary total that can that can come to that. There is no monetary total. If money was really such a big deal, we would be all about these trust fund babies that play these high-stakes tournaments because, oh, he's there all the time, right? Even final table to tournament or two, but we don't respect that person. We respect the guy who can look across the other table and goes, I prepared for this situation. You do not prepare. You will fail. And you will fail even if you get there on the river. You are not prepared for me. You did not take the time. I was studying while you were partying. I was working while you were not taking it seriously. I was in the lab while you were playing video games. That feeling is unlike any other. And it's really the burn, the burn of lifting weights. It's really getting to work every day and knowing you're pushing towards something greater. That is a feeling like nothing I've ever felt before. And that's not going to lie, it's hard to step away from one week before the Borgata, right? But I can feel my mind getting more relaxed. I'm making myself read quite a bit. And I can feel my mind being more open toward interpretation and positivity. And I think that creative air, that love of the game is really coming back. Uh, what I'm doing is I'm reading a lot about sports because that gets me very much in the mood to play games and to join that pantheon of men that pushed forward towards something greater and just this analogy we have for life where we try to achieve victory on something as silly as a card game like that, 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 that gets me into a zone and I'm, I'm really feeling myself close to that zone. I'm really, I'm just thrilled to compete again. Like I'm just really, really grateful for the opportunity to go compete in Borgata. And I know the way I play, I'm either going to, I'm either going to flame out in the first four hours. I'm going to be at the final table. That's just how it works, right? But it's, I just, I'm really praying against the four hours because I just, it's not even about the money. It's, I, there, there's nothing more I want than to write a check for my investors. There's nothing more I would love more in this world, but I really just want to play. And it's really nice to be back there and to still be feeling this way 12 years in and going into my 30s. Okay. Uh, let's get into some questions, Alex. Okay. Um, this one is from Ed. Hey, I'm a bit overwhelmed when I'm looking into new concepts, some of the tools and also some... Join the club. Sorry, go <laughs> ahead. And, and also some of the tools and strategy. 
I've been playing for two years, but I'm looking to take my game to the next phase. Can you give me some starting point or some critical things to try and focus on one at a time? Well, going back to, uh, thank you for your question, by the way. Uh, Going back to something in the introduction, something that uh, really helps me is just visualizing the game and imagining the situation. And I even put a face to the guy. Uh, It's really easy if I came up in this situation before and I failed because I can look at the guy in my head and go like, this isn't going to happen again. I just visualize getting through that situation a hundred different ways. And uh, that's not to say that necessarily means you master it. It just means you get a lot closer. Uh, But uh, I would start with situations that just come up all the time. So something that I used to always feel a twinge on uh, was what am I supposed to play preflop? Because if I don't know what to play preflop, I really don't know how to play cards. Because that's, uh, that's the keyhole to the whole kingdom, uh, what you're supposed to play preflop. So uh, something I would just start with is just situations that come up all the time where I don't know what to do. So something I latched onto years ago was I raised uh, very deep in the PCA with a uh, 10-7 suited. I raised under the gun at a shorthanded table. I want to say we were seven-handed, uh, final three tables. Uh, and, uh, you know, a nine big blind stack shoved, I called, and I lost the flip. And that kind of started a downward trend, which saw me running the chip lead with 24 on down to, like, 17th or 14th. I don't even remember. So I took the value of the pain of that situation, and it doesn't have to be a DPCA run. It can be a $5 tournament. That's how I started. Uh, was just I fudged up at a $5 final table when I was 17, and I looked into the situation more. Uh, I, took, I took that frustration, and I, I, I took that frustration. I looked into that situation again, and I tried to ask myself, how could I really find if what I did was correct or not? So with the preflop stuff, what I started doing with databases was I was just looking, I was just filtering for that hand uh, in every position and seeing if I made money or lost money. That's a good start. And then when I lost money, I would just replay the hands and see what happened. And then if there was a specific type of hand or way I was losing, I'd, I'd try to remove that hand. So one thing I found is if nobody three bet made, pretty much all my opens were profitable. So I ended up finding out in that PCA, um, like the raise was probably profitable because I could profitably call the short stacks all in uh, just barely with the ante structure. And that guy was not shoving that often. And nobody else is three betting me because we were all noticeable. We were all very scared going into the final table. It, by the way, all those pros that look steely faced deep in the tournaments, that's all an act. Everybody's very nervous uh, once they get deep in those tournaments, right? I, I think I'm a little less so than I used to be just because I've worked so hard on my game and also because I've been there a few times before, but it, until you get there the first time, it's very intimidating. And even the second and third time, it's very intimidating. So, uh, But I think there's value in that. You just look at the situations that made you feel intimidated and start going from that. So I'd really I'd look at your opens uh, a lot, C-benning a lot, because that's stuff that happens all the time. Uh, Three-betting, what hands you can three-bet profitably what situations you can three-bet profitably. I'll give you a hint. If they don't four-bet you, you're usually okay. 
Uh, and what the other thing I would look at is when you're on the defense, how much money are you making and how can you get around those hands? That's actually, I started working on that about two years ago, which was I, I started isolating all the spots where I lost all my chips in uh, poker tournaments. And I just tried to avoid those situations. And I found kind of goofy workarounds in a lot of them. And uh, just magically, I started going deep in tournaments. Like, I, I didn't even feel like I had a hand ever. Like, and obviously, there was still quite a bit. Of, there is still quite a bit of work to do. Like, the great thing about this game is you're never done, and you never truly master it. But uh, the, it did help me get deeper, and it, it, it's very gratifying to go like that. So in, the other thing I want you to focus on is uh, everybody is overwhelmed. Everybody is winging it. I cannot tell you how many guys... Remember, I, I have taught multiple number one pocket fivers, multiple top ten pocket fivers, players of the year, guys like that. Even uh, <laughs> a lot of them... I, a lot of them are very educated, and then there's a lot that go, you know what, man, I don't know. I don't know how to do any of this. And they need to work on it, too. And then you go through their games, and maybe they have really natural they have a natural uh gift when it comes to the game but they still need to work on it and i find if you just pick one thing a day and you make it fun it it should be fun Uh, like the there there's this great video by uh eric thomas that carlos welch was nice enough to send to me but he was talking to uh he was talking to a football team and he was talking about, you ever notice how, like, the lion, when he gets to the gazelle, he plays with it a little bit? Like, he knows he can hunt down the gazelle, but he just he just kind of, like, touches it and pushes it away. And, like, come on, come on, run, I dare you. Why? Because he loves the hunt. He loves that feeling of a hunt. And I think you got to, I think when you picture it as a hunt, I, I picture the situation in your mind and winning in that situation and just you focus on that one thing a day, just like one thing, I think that's when it becomes really fun. But if you just look at it, I remember the first time I looked at a HUD was in 2006, and I was like, what is this crap? And I turned it off, and I didn't use a HUD again until 2010, right? Because it was so overwhelming, and I didn't want to deal with it. But when I finally did get to... Well, first I put a HUD up on my table in 2009. Didn't understand any number. I just, if anybody was walking by, I'd be like, see, I use a HUD. Look at that, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't know what any of the numbers meant, right? And uh, finally, 2010, I figured, like, eh, maybe I should start learning how to use this thing, right? And uh, I just started with one number a day, like, trying to figure out what those numbers meant. And then... I think when you have specific questions as to what you want to learn, uh, it's really helpful then to hire a coach, right? There's a lot of times guys show up for my lessons and they go, I don't know where to start. I don't know what to do. And then I, which is fine, but then I have to go, okay, um, let me tell you what I think is the most important right now. But there's a lot of guys, like when the number one pocket fighters would come in, they go, Alex, I need to know this, this, and this by the end of today. And I'd be like, okay, Jesus. Okay, yeah. All right, uh, let me look into it. And then if your coach can't answer those questions, well, you need to find what his real expertise is or you just shouldn't work with him, right? 
Like, if you're looking for the ICM stuff, I'm not the best guy for you, right? And the, a lot of, because, well, what's really going to be the best thing for you is ICMizer or something like that, right? But if you're looking for anything specific, you can go onto a forum and you can go, did anybody ever do a training video about this, right? By the way, there's no law that you can only post on one forum, you can post on every forum and go, like, I'm a little confused about this. And if you're lucky, you know, you'll be luckier more often than not because good luck comes to people who work hard. Somebody will go, oh, I saw a video about that here. And you check out the video. It's expensive. It takes a lot of time. But um, the other thing I want you to know is two years in is nothing. Like, two years. <laughs> there are guys that get really good after three or four years, but they're the exceptions for a reason. That's notable for a reason. Uh, I couldn't, I couldn't tie my shoes two times out of three, three years in, right? So, and I think a lot, I think Phil Ivey said he lost at poker the first two years he played, and then he barely broke even on the third, or that's what I heard, and that that doesn't surprise me. Uh, so don't worry, you're just still starting. It, the fact you're studying it all puts you ahead of ninety nine percent of people. Just keep going with it and. Remember, it's about enjoying the process. It's not uh, something I've been thinking about a lot lately, Barry, is I told one of my students, like, how long are you prepared to wait for results? Uh, because I, one thing with poker training is I can't promise you results. I can't do that. Um, a lot of my students do really well. I just had a student win a WCP package i just had another student final table a million i just had another student do really well and they're using my methods and they swear by my methods and then there's other people that struggle for a month or two because implementation is hard uh because poker is also still a funny game full of gambling and i asked this guy how long are you prepared to wait for results and uh this guy said i'm ready to wait months or years and i, I kind of thought you have to really do it as if there would never be a result. As if, because the vast majority of guys I know who are really good at poker, if they had applied that to academics, they could have gotten, they could have passed the bar easily <laughs> and have been making four times as much money, right? You really got to do this because you love it. You really have to do it just because you love getting in the situation. And you love being able to handle it, and you love being able to go back home and learn how to use Flopzilla and Card Organizer V and know that it's better, uh, that you did it right, or to look at databases. If if you can do that stuff, I, I think if you can just enjoy that process, I think you'll you'll have a bright future in this career. I, I also think people in poker are still completely underestimate the size uh, sample size is needed to actually see. A proper reflection, you know. Oh yeah, it's like hugely. Um, oh yeah, <laughs> it's uh, well, I I know. Well, one time I counted, I played every WSOP event, and uh, I played every WSOP Hold'em event. I counted the hands, and it was some like six thousand. <laughs> I have a database. I have databases of millions of hands of some of my students where they've won, run way under expectation, right? So you think about, you think about that, right? Like 
a lot of the guys we call the WSP greats are like literally running well on their first month of online play. Yeah. Right? And the guy that it's about that many hands. And that that's so, hands that you're looking at as well. So when you factor in tournaments in terms of variants oh needed to win a tournament, you literally need tens and tens of thousands of tournaments. And still you're not even close, I don't think. I think no, mathematically no. you're still nowhere near outliers and stuff. There's no way. Well, I picked uh I found a database of my hands where I thought I was playing the worst poker of my career, right? Because I wanted to learn from that time. When I was looking at a lot of different databases that people let me look at, I was trying to find, I was trying to find what I did when I was super successful and what I stopped doing when I started going down, right? And I found what it was, by the way, Barry. It was really fascinating. But the, <laughs> the thing that's funny is whenever I show people that database in personal lessons, they look at my EV big blind and then they look at what I ran and they go, oh my God, like... How did you go through that? And the the thing being is like that's just like every day in poker. I can't tell you how many guys I get where they're like, "Yeah, this guy's two hundred thousand in makeup. We hate him. We scream at him all the time. We think he's the worst person ever. Uh, we can't. We don't know why he's still in makeup. You know, he hates himself. He says uh, says he doesn't want to play this game anymore. And I look up. I look at the guy's database and it's like ev big blind per 108 uh actually running 1.2 right mm -hmm. and by the way that 1.2 that doesn't have to be at the end of the tournament right like he could be running really bad at the end of the tournament and yeah you know everybody in his stable is just giving this guy crap for nothing right and then i look at like the prize horse the guy who's like the best and he, his ev line is like four but he's running at 10 so he's a genius right and they I hate telling the guy, like, uh, yeah, you probably should sell that house. Um, the house you just bought that you think you're going to be able to pay the mortgage on for the next 20 years, because I'm looking at how you play. It's probably not going to happen. And they're like, shut up, dude. What do you know? You're old. And it's, uh, it, but it's like you said, well, in, by the way, the guy could be the next big thing in poker. There could be something I'm not quantifying. I, we really don't know in poker, because I'm sure, what, soccer started being, like, a major professional thing in Europe in what, like, the early 1900s? Yeah, I mean, I'd, uh, I'd even say then it'd probably be the, the 40s and 50s when they started really sort of becoming celebrity-ish type players, right. I would say, so, you know? I'm sure in 1908 people thought they knew a lot about soccer. And then in 1922, they were all going, <laughs> you idiots back in 1908, look at what we know now. But looking from 2018 back at the guys in the 20s and the 30s, we see they were just nincompoops who didn't know anything, right? That's where we're at in poker right now. In poker, we're in 1922. We do not know anything. We are still stabbing in the dark. We are going to look at a lot of these superstars and just shake our heads in 20 years, right? And there's, we are still at, in such an infancy in this game. Like you said, Barry, like people don't even understand where it's at. Do you think poker will ever be as big as any sport? I think about this sometimes. Do you yeah. think if they could make it a live thing where like they had totally sequestered rooms and you could see the cards, it would be a big deal? No. 
No, you don't think so? No. I'm hoping one day. I want to be a celebrity in India. I want a contract there, damn it, Barry. Well, po- poker in India might become big and, and have a huge online boom. I'm sure that will happen eventually and whatever in, chi- in China as well. But um, <laughs> I don't think in terms of a global sport, in terms of, because it's niche. It's still niche. Yeah, it's niche. It's you niche, know? right? Yeah, and, and there's no, the boom with the moneymaker and stuff, I think that's about as big as it could could get. Um, I think once it gets legalized again online in the America, which people are still talking about and whatever, then it'll get another spurt and stuff. But no, I think there's a cap in terms of widespread appeal. What you're talking about is, you know, celebrity, global celebrity. No, oh hell no! No 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 no! no. <laughs> that will never happen. No poker no. player will ever be as famous as Kim Kardashian. That's the truth. This is true. This is true. Yeah. But do, do you think it could be like something like handball? You know what I mean? Yeah, oh, yeah, or, yeah. I think it's bigger yeah. than handball already. I can't bigger than handball. handball. Like it's handball. already bigger yeah. than it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm trying. I go back and forth because if you watched baseball in 1864, I'm sure a lot of people went. There is no way this is going to catch on. This is the most boring sport I have ever seen in my entire life, right? And now it's like this multi-multi-billion dollar thing. But I guess, I guess in baseball there's like physical feats, right? Like that nobody can do. Like hitting a home run is very exciting. But is a triple barrel bluff really exciting if there was a room where no, you, know, you could be there live and like the guys couldn't hear anything? But they could watch the guy like thinking about it. I think it's hard. I think it's hard to ask me that a poker player who watches poker now and again and whatever in terms of I don't get excited about watching any triple three you know battle blast. Yeah, but you and I are two hundred years old, Barry. Do you think like the standard guy would be into it? I don't know. I think about this a lot. I think they'd look at it and go, "Oh, look, you know that's what." But I don't think. I don't think it's edge of the seat stuff still. I when late night poker was in the UK on Channel Four, that was the start really the television shows with the whole cams etc. It got an audience, but it was on at like eleven twelve o'clock at night. Again, it was niche. It's a it's middle age. Well, I'd say it's males eighteen to forty, and you know maybe eighteen to fifty five or whatever. I'd say up that late at night watching crappy television. That's the market. I I've always thought that with poker in terms of. I'm not doubting its uh, appeal, its universal uh, love, like cultures and different races can play it all and enjoy it, and there's a lot of good that can come out of poker and you can learn a lot about yourself, but in terms of a spectator sport that was going to, like, put it this way, if, um, forget football or soccer, as you you call it in the UK, if if that's on in Scotland or playing or whatever... um, my fiance, who very rarely watches any football, in fact, when it's on, she usually leaves the room, you know, when I'm watching it or whatever. No interest. But if Scotland's on, she'll take an interest because it's national thing, you know, and whatever. And even, like, my mum or that'll be remotely interested in the local teams or the national teams or whatever. There's a sort of uh, passing interest that can get whipped up at these big major tournaments, World Cups, etc., when the country gets, you know, behind it. Poker... In terms of, yeah, it's not like soccer or anything like that. But I just don't see the passing interest in terms of the passing casual fan. Because you need to know the rules, basically, to have a true... Like, you're going to sit down and watch 50 minutes of poker, you know? Right. You need to know 
more than the rules actually. You need to know at least what hand beats what hand and what the blinds and antis, you know all the structure. If I sit down a casual viewer in front of like a poker show and they're watching this, the current format, the current way of doing it, I, I don't see it. And That's I get, what I'm saying. What if the current format changed? I, well, what you still it? need to know the, the basics. The, a casual player still needs to know the basics. And again, it goes back to the problem that it's niche. The average right. man in the street I, doesn't know how to play Hold'em. So, you know. I just... there To me, the universality of it is what's really intriguing, right? Because... To me, because uh, to go against your argument, baseball is the most confusing sport in the world. Mm-hmm. I have watched baseball my entire life. There are still times things they call out where I go, what? Like, that makes no sense. F- the rules for NFL football change every year. NFL football is the third biggest betting sport in the world. But again, it's a beautiful game. When you watch those huge passes, you go, that's insane. But what? imagine... Uh, <laughs> I just, I, yeah, I, I don't think it'll ever be big as a sport, but I think it could be much bigger than it is now. If people watch eSports, like, if people watch I eSports snookers, as much as they I supposedly do. I think snooker do. is a good analogy. Uh, snooker? Yeah, snooker. Yeah. Because you've got the individual players. It's not countries or teams that, you know, it's, it's a sole competitor. And some of the matches can be long drawn out, tactical, boring affairs or whatever with not much action. There's a little bit of commentary. But it gets a cult following. And the darts as well in the UK and uh, parts of Europe is really uh, flying the last few years. The last 10 years. The darts are really popular now in the UK. And the coverage that's sky. And um, so it needs the right people behind it to then push it as a format. And the the argument with... uh, Poker is what would you be? What would be really for a, a you know, um, the casual viewer to like increase its uh, sort of interest to people, and it would need to be uh, something along the lines of, um, I don't know, the six max sitting goes or a nine max sitting go, you know, something like that for big money where people were, you know, whatever. Because if you're doing these multi-table tournaments like the WSOP then you're asking people to watch for weeks and weeks on end and then watch through to the finality. I think it only works in a small, compact, like a high-stakes cash game or something like that. Like, high-stakes poker was, you know, successful. And I know people that didn't even have an interest in poker, but they would watch that along and kind of just find it interesting because the physical money was on the table, etc., you know? When they're sitting yeah, playing with just a stack of yellow and green chips, it's like, what is this, Connect Four sort of thing, you know? <laughs> um, so, no, I, I don't doubt it could be bigger, and I think when the time's right in terms of legislation in America, and also in the UK, I mean, the UK is very big on, like, lots of football teams here are sponsored by betting companies. Online mm-hmm. betting and online gambling is 100% legal here and tax-free just now, you know, so there's no problem in the UK and stuff, but the EPT gets a screening on Channel 4. Like, poker players or people that play poker, I'll watch it now and again, but there's nobody, like, you know, a housewife that's put her kids to bed, not t- tuning in and going, who's never played poker in her life, getting hooked on that instantly. Right, there's no right. initial hook, if you know what I mean. You have to have a... It's like if chess comes on the tournament, you don't know, on the t- television, it could be the grandmaster against the best in the world. One, no, the casual viewer doesn't know who they are. 
to some people don't know how to play chess, so they're not going to sit and watch. There's not an initial theory. You know, people know the basics of soccer, and you have to get the ball in the net. Really, you know, so even like right. a wife getting forced to watch it can eventually get emotionally involved because she can watch human the human competitive spirit going back and forward towards an alternate goal, whether it's ice hockey or American football or whatever. Whereas mm-hmm. poker, she's seeing like percentages and. Uh, or he, I don't want to be sexist here, so, you know, or kings and queens and this, and like, you've got to really know the rules to follow it as a spectator sport. If you don't know the rules, I don't get, I don't know how anyone can sit and watch more than five minutes of poker. I also think the announcing is garbage on 99% of poker shows. Yeah, I, have... I think Gabe Kaplan and that did a good job on high stakes for a casual, you know. Yeah, like, I, he, he did a good job, but like, I have sat there, I, I have, okay, when people put on, when I would have parties in Costa Rica and somebody would put on poker, I'd be like, would you shut that off, right? And then I, I'd be like, what do you do for a living? I'm a chef. Would you cook me dinner, right? And then, but then they'd leave it on. And then eventually, as I'm prone to do, I'd start mouthing off about the action, right? Mm-hmm. And everybody in that room would be listening to me because I could put it in terms they'd understand. I'd be like, well, he's trying to say that he has this hand, which means he's got a da-da-da-da-da, right? And then, but, like, the announcing would be like, like he's betting about half the pot, going with a continuation bet. He is representing aggression. I go, what does that even mean? Mm. I don't know. Whereas you could put people in simple terms like, he's trying to say he has this, if this guy folds, he's going to make all this money with absolutely nothing. He just tricked him. Now, that is a human element, right? He's got to look at his face and know he's lying, right? Or if he caught... You know who was the best at this was Mike Sexton. I didn't know a damn thing about poker when I tuned into the World Poker Tour the first time. He put everything in such dead basic terms for me. And I started understanding the game. And then... I. I'm not trying to be mean. I'd watch the WSOP coverage. I wouldn't know what the hell I was watching, right? It was just, okay. Like, there's a, you know, and it would be some joke about some ex-wife or something like that. And I, I just, I, I wasn't sure what was going on, right? Oh, I miss Mike Sexton. We're never going to have another like him, man. Um, do you have time for one more question? We got off on a tangent there about the future of poker and how we were deciding yeah, it. Um, <laughs> Yeah, let's, uh, I'll do it really quick, okay? Okay, well, let me quick scan them then to see if this is, uh... Uh, you know what, let's wrap it up here. I gotta go, I'm okay. sorry. Okay, no problem. Okay, we will save your next questions for the next show, and if you're listening, that is Roger and Tyler. Uh, we will... Actually, Roger Tyler, is that another guy that... No, that's Roger Taylor, I was thinking of. <laughs> uh, okay, we will get your questions out in the next episode. Um, Alex, how can people get in touch with you for consultation? Any television companies listening that want you to uh, <laughs> set out the strategy for poker going forward? Or some listeners listening, how can they get your webinars and any other products, etc. you got coming out or already up for sale? Uh, write me at alex at pokeredrush.com if you guys want to get, into, get in touch with me about anything. Sign up for my newsletter at pokeredrush.com. That's uh, kind of my fun blog site. To the top right, there's a sign-up link for my email newsletter. 
And uh, sign up for my YouTube channel, at Assassin Auto Coaching. Check out my premium training video content at Tournament Poker Edge. And, yeah, check out, I'm going to give Barry another video to post because there's videos coming up every week on my YouTube channel. So I'll go ahead and put that in the liner notes for you guys. It's the first 30 minutes of Master Poker with one hour a day. If you guys want to check that out, I just put that up uh, for free on YouTube. Okay. If you want to send questions in for Alex on a future show, please email questions at oneouter.com or you can tweet them at oneouter.com. That is at O-N-E-O-U-T-E-R-D-O-T-C-O-M. Alex, thanks for joining us eventually this week. <coughs> and uh, <laughs> we will see you next week. Uh, thanks for, uh, in all seriousness, thanks for giving us the time and uh, answering the questions you did. And I enjoyed it. And I'm sure people, lots of content today to take away. Especially the first part of the show when we're talking about um, what it takes to be a, an Alex Fitzgerald. Uh, <laughs> thanks for listening. And we'll see you all next week. Cheers. Cheers. The Sunday Major is back to the USA. America's Card Room is kicking off 2018 with a Texas Hold'em-sized bang that could change your life. Beginning January 7th, America's Card Room is hosting the biggest Sunday Major on the planet with $1,001,000 on the table every week. Yes, $1,001,000 guaranteed. Forget about just one time to change your life. The $1,001,000 guaranteed tournament is happening weekly, all for just $265 a pop. For all the info, check out americascardroom.eu.